thing. For all of us who are, you know, um, how can I put this? Not as young as we used to be. And for all of us who have come to grips with that, that we're not as young as we used to be. And for all of us who understand that there are only so many years that even the most fortunate or unfortunate, depending on how you look at things, live, it begins to affect the way you think. So uh, some of you will find this humorous and some of you just really won't care, but I would like to share it anyway. I was thinking, you know what? If I just take my time through this, I'd still like to do a series on Romans. I can do that next. And then and then there's a, another series that I would like to. I would like to do uh, at least the first part of Genesis. And I'm thinking to myself, I'm 64. I'm probably not going to get to too many more series if we go like this. So I'm, I'm, I'm beginning to really whittle down what I really want to say. And what that says to, is, is this, I, I pray, and it is this, that... We're not going to waste any scripture. Okay, so if there's something in the scripture that may be of historical interest or something that maybe we haven't had a lesson on <clears throat> and, and it's relevant, <clears throat> and of course all scripture is relevant, and I know that, but I think I would much rather just go off on some of these rabbit trails as long as you remain interested in them. Um, <clears throat> because I have been learning a lot. Uh, there was a pastor... A uh, semi-retired pastor <clears throat> in our midst last week, and he came up. He said, "You know, I never knew that Gethsemane meant wine uh, olive press." He said, "I'm going to steal that," and I said, "Well, I just stole it last week. <laughs> I, di- I never knew that. Uh, you just you, you kind of look at Gethsemane, and there's an author's note. And you go, really? So you look it up, and so anyway, I, I hope that's okay with everyone. I'd rather be really be really thorough, and hopefully." At the end of someone's time, they can say, I have the big picture and uh, with some details. So that's my way of explanation and my excuse for being late probably today and leaving. <clears throat> Lord, we love you. God, It's uh, uh, we're just stunned most of the time, although sometimes we're too busy to know that we're stunned. And then something catches our attention and we begin to think about it. And we think, man, how have I taken that for granted? And of course, the ultimate person we take for granted is you. And you're so gracious in that. Lord, be with us, please. And may this be interesting to people. In Jesus' name, amen. So last week, we drew several important conclusions. One of them was that every word that Jesus spoke was Holy Scripture. Now, I said that to someone that's not here, my wife, and don't tell her any of this, okay? She goes, I'd have to think about that. And I go, I knew what she was saying because Jesus spoke so many words. But it's not really much of a theological thing as it is an academic thing. If Jesus truly is God, then everything he spoke was God's word. Therefore, everything he spoke was scripture, And I had never thought about that before. But that's one of the things we talked about. Because he was and is God everywhere he spoke was from the word of God. And our God is a God of economy. Do you know that? He never wastes anything. He's a God of economy. Why? Because he's perfect. Most of our wasted time is going back and correcting things we have done improperly. 
or trying to figure out how to do something better. That's our waste of time. Well, God is perfect, so everything He says is perfect when it happens. He's a God of economy, therefore, there were no wasted words. Jesus did not embellish the truth, nor did He apologize for the truth. Every word was weighed and measured and placed perfectly in every sentence with the perfect grammar and exclamation points and question marks and periods. Perfectly. Not just what he said, but how he said it. And we are commanded to do the same, by the way. Psalm 19.14 says, Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be what? Acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my walk, my, my rock and my redeemer. Psalm 141.3 says, Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. <clears throat> the reason this was important, especially last week, is because we realized that every word that Jesus spoke, which was Scripture, accomplished its purpose. His teachings were not an interpretation of an academic presentation of his sermons, like mine are. His teachings, everything he said was 100% Scripture. They were undeniable eternal truth, and they remain undeniable eternal truth. And then we asked a question, why is this important to understand? Number one, Christ's words accomplish their purpose. I'm not going to reteach last week. You can find evidence of that in Isaiah 55.10, and that scripture references on your scripture sheet. Number two, Christ's words did not preach a different message depending on the audience. Every audience heard the same teaching and arrived at dramatically different conclusions. Just like today. The Word of God is still absolute truth and it pierces... It slices between soul and spirit and bone and marrow. Scripture reference for that in Hebrews 4.12. Number three, it demonstrates to us the sovereignty of God. <clears throat> God is sovereign on all areas. There is nothing in which God does not exercise control, including the suffering, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. There's another reason we had to come to that conclusion. It was not the enemy who was taking Jesus to the cross. It was not Satan who was taking Jesus to the cross. Satan was trying to prevent him from going to the cross. Now, that's probably not something we hear a lot of. And by the way, that's not my own genius because I don't have any genius left in me. This is something that, that as I study... And I listen to other people preach on these topics that are just so good and they have such, such great information. I guess I thought about that, but I didn't really think about it because I think all the time I was growing up in, in church, and it wasn't long, just about like four years of my life for a while, I think I'd always heard that Satan escorted Jesus to the cross and that was, that was Satan's goal. Well, it wasn't. How do, we, how do we figure that out logically? Because that would be accomplishing God's will. But if you don't believe that Jesus went to the cross by God's will, then none of this makes sense. So we discussed that there are three significant reasons for Christ choosing to retreat to Mount Olivet last week. <clears throat> Olivet provided privacy from the crowds. It is here that he poured into his disciples for the last time called the Olivet Discord, Matthew 25. You need to read that if you can. It was at the end of this great teaching that Jesus made the following statement. 
Matthew 26, 1, he said, When Jesus had finished these sayings, he said to his disciples, You know, and he may have even phrased it this way, I don't know, You know, guys, that after two days of Passover is coming. And they go, yeah. And the Son of Man will be delivered. Yeah. And he'll be crucified. Yeah. What's next, Jesus? So all of it provided privacy from the crowds. That's where he said, in two days, I'm going to be crucified. All of it provided safety from the leadership. They were looking for an opportunity to quietly arrest him. Matthew 26, 3 through 5. Olivet provided solitude for him to be with his father, Matthew 26, 39 and 42. Those scripture references are on your scripture sheet. Last week, we were reminded of these truths. Jesus was deliberately and intentionally moving toward the cross. This had always been his mission, and he would fulfill his mission. So what was his mission? Well, there's been a lot of speculation on that, to save mankind. Well, that was kind of in the periphery that got kind of included in that. But what was his mission? His mission was to become the final blood sacrifice for those who received him. The need for a blood sacrifice began in the Garden of Eden and it would end and be fulfilled in the Garden of Gethsemane. And this is where the blood of Jesus was spilled on the altar, the cross, in place of the substitute offerings of animals. primary mission was to glorify his Father. Glorify. What if that was our primary mission? How would our lives change? How would other people begin to see us? So last week we closed with the following verses. Luke 22. Actually, we closed in verse 20. Our scriptures for this morning is Luke 22, 1 through 6. And that is on your scripture sheet. Now the Feast of Unleavened Bread drew near, which is called the Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of of a crowd. Now this morning we're going to spend some time reconstructing these events that took place just prior to what we know as the Lord's Supper. So we're going to be looking at certain participants in this conspiracy. We'll begin with the religious elites and Judas. So we're going to talk about the religious elites and Judas. Some of these men have been identified by scriptures. And there are names we have heard most of our lives through Bible stories and even religious movies. And we know, of course, that Jesus be- had become a very serious problem for the religious elites. So much so that very early on, in the first year of his earthly ministry, at the beginning of his earthly ministry, Some of them were so enraged they tried to kill him. There was a time they tried to run up to him, take hold of him, and throw him off a cliff. And by the time they got to where he had been standing, he was gone. That was not out of fear. That was out of fulfilling the prophecy. By the way, that's when Satan was trying to kill him. Why? 
would keep him from going to the cross. See, in the end times, Satan's going, no, 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 no. Satan says, you can't get good help these days. They all want to do their own thing. So you know some of these men, Sunday school and religious movies, he'd become a very serious problem for these guys, and for three years the desperation of the elite had continued to grow. He has humiliated them by cleansing the temple twice. During the first year of his ministry, he cleansed the temple, and then just this third year, he cleansed the temple again. When confronted with the law, his answers were stunning in their simplicity and unchallengeable in their content. And these are the guys, they were the, they were the brains. And now we find ourselves witnessing the unthinkable in the final hours of his life. In the 11th chapter of John, and I think I put that on the scripture sheet also, there is an account of a meeting that involved some Jewish men who had witnessed the ministry of Jesus, the Pharisees, and one of the high priests. So we're going to read that a little bit at a time here. John 11:45 says, Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what Jesus did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what he had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the council. Now, by the way, that council was called the Sanhedrin or the Sanhedrin, of which some of them were principal members, and said, What are we to do? Now, the great Sanhedrin was a supreme court of ancient Israel. It was made up of 70 men and the high priest, the high priest at the time. In the second temple period, the great Sanhedrin met in the temple in Jerusalem. The court convened every day except festivals and on the Sabbath, which they would break those rules within hours. So we see that this makes sense in the eyes of these men who had seen what Jesus was doing and they were concerned about it. They approached the Pharisees about Jesus. So let's go to the Supreme Court who has absolutely all authority, and that way we are wasting no time. And it's led by the high priest Caiaphas. Heard that name? Caiaphas? Caiaphas? And let's settle this matter of Jesus. So what was the concern of these men, including the Pharisees, that they would call an emergency session of the Sanhedrin? What had Jesus done? What did they see in him that made them believe that all of Israel was in danger? Well, the answer to this question for us is in the next few scriptures. John 11, this man is performing many signs. That's one of the things that got them worried. And they say, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and destroy both our holy place and our nation. So there are the three immediate concerns that the Scriptures reveal to us. Number one is that he was performing signs. Why were they concerned about miracles and healings? Well, they give you the answer. Everyone will believe in him. Why were they concerned about everyone believing in him? And here's the heart of it. It means a loss of power, 
loss of prestige, and loss of their career. Number two, it will attract the attention of Rome. Romans will get involved and destroy our temples, synagogues, etc. They will outlaw our religion. What would be the result of Rome outlawing their religion? Loss of power, loss of prestige, and loss of careers. It says they will destroy both our holy place and our nation. Rome will destroy our nation, Israel. More pointedly, they're thinking they will refuse to recognize us as a legitimate nation within a nation, which is what this was. What's the result? Loss of power, loss of prestige, and loss of career. So John gives us more insight into this meeting in verse 49. 49 of John 11 says this, But but one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all. You ignorant religious idiots. You know nothing at all. So who was Caiaphas? Well, we know the office he held, right? He's he's high priest at that time. But it is worth mentioning that he was the son-in-law of Annas, who was the previous high priest. Now, Annas, believe it or not, you know what his name means? The grace of Jehovah. That's what his name means. He had been removed from office by Rome when Jesus was approximately 16 or 17 years old. It is also worth noting that although his son-in-law, Caiaphas, was then officially appointed as a high priest, so it's a dynasty now. And by the way, in the book of Acts, they mention three of his sons, Jonathan, Alexander, and I can't remember the, the other name. He still wielded considerable power and influence. And this is evident How do we know this? Because Annas was the high priest to whom they first took Jesus instead of Caiaphas. So we see this unofficial figurehead, a lot of power, a lot of influence. This is what God is setting up. Well, back to the meeting. We we now read that Caiaphas was front and center. When it came to dictating the direction of this meeting, he had a... Obviously, he had a very strong personality. He was very self-assured, probably arrogant prideful, all of those things that go with men in power. He says, you do not understand anything. You understand nothing at all. And then he goes on to say in verse 50, you do not understand that it is better for you to have one man die for the people than to have the whole nation destroyed. He did not say this on his own, but being high priest that year, he prophesied, that Jesus was about to die for the nation. In other words, he didn't mean to do that. The Holy Spirit spoke it through him. And not for the nation only, but to gather into one dispersed 
uh, children of God. So from that day on, they planned to put him to death. Now, let me go back and read that in its entirety because I interrupted myself. Verse 51, he did not say this on his own, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was about to die for the nation and not for the nation only, but to gather into one, meaning unity, the dispersed children of God. Those who would receive Christ Jesus as Gentiles and become grafted in. All of that would have been literally Greek to them. And not for the nation only, but to the others who were dispersed. So from that day on, they planned to put him to death. Because of Caiaphas's, Caiaphas's speech, from that day on, they got really serious. He, he stepped up and took control of the meeting. He spelled it out and was very decisive in his reasoning. However, in the process of making his case... God used him to prophesy what he would be responsible for within hours. And he prophesied how God was going to save the world. He still didn't know it, by the way. Better for you to have one man die for the people than to have the whole nation destroyed. The angels went, Amen! Here's a heathen. Here's a pagan. Here's an arrogant, prideful man who hates God and he just spoke truth. Now, he didn't mean to, but he just spoke truth. And by the way, when truth is spoken, it's worth amen. Because from that day on, they plan to put him to death. And by the way, this is a great example of how God can choose anyone to speak truth through the power of the Holy Spirit when it serves his purpose. And by the way, Caiaphas who later would later charge Jesus, now get this, the Son of God with blasphemy. Let it sink in a little bit. It had to for me. The high priest of Israel charging God with blaspheming himself. That's more than irony. And in Matthew, we have a little more information. Matthew 26, 3. The chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. So what we're doing is we're trying to build, we're trying to help all of us see that this meeting is, is called by the Sanhedrin, 70 men plus Caiaphas, and they typically meet in the temple, except for Sabbath and festivals. So that's what they're doing. So now we know who met. Now we know where they met. They not only decided what they should do, they began to make plans on how to accomplish it. But there was a problem. They feared that a public arrest would not go well. Matthew 26, 5, they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. Minimally, a million people in Jerusalem for the Passover. The other side of that is some people say two million. That's a lot of people, especially with animals. Small city, 35-acre temple, Courtyard, small. 
And the last thing they wanted was what they were going to get. At this point, their entire plan depended upon secrecy. To make matters worse, Jesus and his disciples basically disappeared each night. All of these nights, when they're at the Passover, probably all three times he attended as a Passover, he attended the Passover as an adult in his ministry, they would retire to Bethany. Mary, Martha, Lazarus, who had been raised from the dead, and by the way, they were trying to kill him too. But on this particular Passover, although they began staying in Bethany, now they disappear each night. And where are they going? Mount Olivet. So now their plan depended entirely upon secrecy. To make matters worse, Jesus and his disciples were disappearing each night. They were no longer staying where they had been staying. So they needed an insider. They had to have an informant. They needed a traitor. Now, can you imagine 70 men and the high priest saying, who can we get to betray Jesus? Now, you could get any number of people to betray Jesus if you didn't mind doing it in the open. But they had to have this traitor come to them and what? Tell them where he was going each night. Who can that be? And I'm sure some of them said, are any of his apostles a candidate? No, you kidding me? No. We don't, as a matter of fact, even if they are, we don't know which one it is, and we dare not tip our hand. So how did this work out? Luke 22, verse 3 says, Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was the number of the twelve, who was of the number of the twelve, He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. Now, many biblical scholars, according to timeline, and they are much better at this than I am, they believe that the the meeting that Judas interrupted was the one with the Sanhedrin. So can you imagine... 71 men trying to figure out what to do and who can we get to betray Jesus and in walks Judas. We will deal with Caiaphas a little more in our narrative because he still plays another part in this and even after Christ's resurrection he still plays a role in the disciples in Acts. Sanhedrin meeting behind closed doors, and now Judas enters the picture. So let's talk a little bit about Judas. Who was Judas? Who does the Bible say that Judas was? There's actually a lot of information. I had to whittle it down a bit. Number one, Judas was a hypocrite and a thief. John through 6. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? You can go back and read the details behind that if you want to. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. 
had nothing to do with the poor. He couldn't understand why Jesus would let money, ointment, be wasted in such a way when it could have been used for something far better. So he was a hypocrite. And it also said that he sold from the money bag all, all the time. So a hypocrite and a thief. In John 6, 6, uh, 70 and 71, he was a devil and he was chosen by Jesus. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. He was a hypocrite and a thief. He was a devil. He was chosen by Jesus. Zechariah spoke prophecy about him in the Old Testament. Zechariah 11.12 says, Then I said to them, If it seems good to you, give me my wages. But if not, keep them. And they weighed out as many wages, 30 pieces of silver. Now we even know what Judas said in the meeting. We also read in Matthew that he had, regret, he had regretted what he had done. Matthew 27, 3 says this, Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, What is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and he went and hanged himself. But the chief priest, taking the pieces of silver, said, It is not lawful to put them into the treasury, since it is blood money. So they took counsel and bought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. And the potter's field is prophesied also in Jeremiah. So now we know who's in the meeting. We know where the meeting was being held. We know the meeting was interrupted by Judas. And we know how he made the deal. We also know he was unrepentant. Matthew further testifies of this in verse 24. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would be better for that man if he had not been born. He was not repentant. And by the way, when it says, woe to the man, Jesus never says, woe to believers. We're his children. He doesn't woe us. He disciplines us. But woe means, oh my goodness, you are going to suffer great things. Hypocrite and thief, devil chosen by Jesus, spoken of in prophecy, how he made the deal. He regretted what he had done. He was unrepentant. And finally, he is not to be pitied. One of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? First thing out of Judas's mouth, What will you give me? What will you? What is in it for me? What will you give me if I deliver him to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. He sought an opportunity. He, was, he did not regret until it was too late for him. By the way, that's a number of people. That's, that's how they're going to deal with 
eternity, heard the gospel over and over and over and over and over and over and over. There comes a time for regret that there's only one time for repentance. These were the words of Judas to the Pharisees and officers. What will you give me? He said, here's 30 pieces of silver. It's the equivalent of four months' wages. Jesus is only worth four months' wages to Judas. So let's be clear. Judas did not betray Jesus out of a misplaced loyalty to Israel. Nor did he personally sacrifice anything for the betrayal. He sacrificed his soul. He betrayed Jesus for profit. It was just real simple. It was a financial transaction. And this is how they responded. Four words. And they were glad. You know the irony here? I can almost assure you that some people in that men thanked God for Judas. What a break. God, you've given us what we needed. And they agreed to give him money. So he consented. He said yes. And then he began to plan. In the absence of a crowd, they said this has to be secret. I think that maybe Judas began to understand that this was not going to end well for him, being an apostle, or the rest of the apostles. By the way, it did not end well for hardly any of them, other than the fact, when, when you look at it in a worldly perspective, what was their reward for following Jesus? They were martyred, they were murdered, they were killed, they were tortured. But by then the apostles said, this is all trophy. These are all my trophies now. The sufferings and the beatings and the starvation and the harassment. These are now trophies. Judas didn't look at it that way. I think he made a calculated financial decision how he could get out of this mess with at least a little something for his trouble. And I think that Judas remained exactly who he was on the day of his death as he always had been in his life. He was an opportunist. He was a con man and a cheat. He had no compassion for anyone. He was all about him, no matter who was harmed. But get this. Judas also walked with God. In the flesh. And he heard his voice. He heard him laugh. And he saw and heard him cry. He touched God. And God touched him. He saw miracles, the raising of the dead, Peter walking on water, lepers being instantaneously healed. So back in my little town of Marion, Ohio, the local theater group many years ago was presenting the musical. It was either Godspell or Jesus Christ Superstar. I'm not sure which one. And an acquaintance of mine, he was a musician, was cast as Judas. And this man was not saved, by the way. And a reporter asked him from the local newspaper how he was approaching the role of Judas. 
His reply was, and I am sure he thought it was quite unique and took on a whole new meaning. His reply was that he was approaching the role that Judas was a victim. After all, he really had no choice but to betray Jesus because that was his role in history. That was who he was created to be. It was his destiny. And this gentleman's goal was to help people understand the man behind the crime and create sympathy for him. And by the way, I've heard those arguments. And, and by the way, uh, on an emotional level, it can tug at your heart. It's just not the way it was. It's a problem. This is not a unique approach to the role Judas played in the murder of God's son very much at all. We see it all the time. Poor Judas had no choice. Poor Judas had no free will. Poor Judas, out of deep regret and sorrow, committed suicide. It's a good National Geographic program. It has very little to do with the Bible. Judas's problem was not that he did not have free will. His problem was that he did have free will. And he did what we all do when we exercise our own free will. We sin. He disobeyed his flesh. I'm sorry. He obeyed his flesh. He disobeyed his Lord. He revealed who he truly was. This man was in the presence of the divine, holy, compassionate, gracious, merciful God of the universe during the most unique 33 years in the history of humanity. Take that down to three years. The most unique three years in the history of earth. He was in the presence of God. And what was his response? Four months' wages. Now, John MacArthur, who is no stranger to controversy, made the following statement that only one other person has committed an equally detestable sin as Judas. Adam. They both walked with God. They both betrayed God. And both were directly responsible for the suffering and death of Jesus Christ. See, it's funny. I never really looked at Adam like that. I looked at him as a, oh, maybe a victim Does this statement shock you? Add to this that the sin of Adam is responsible for the fall of the entire human race. However, Adam and Judas are in two very different places. Can I just ask you this? Where is the sympathy for the God who created a universe and put us at the center of that universe and gave us this paradise and said, take this. And he created all that was necessary for Adam and Eve and all of us to live in perfect, beautiful harmony and have a paradise that we could call our own. Where is the sympathy for the God that when Adam stepped up and took a bite of whatever that was, in other words, he disobeyed that all of creation fell. 
Where's our sympathy for God then? Where's our sympathy for God that within one generation, within the same generation, murder took place that God had to deal with? Do you think that murder did not grieve God? Of course it grieved God. So where's our sympathy for God the Creator, the perfect one? Where's our sympathy for the one that when when Adam chose to do that and all humanity fell, that he said, I will send my son so I can redeem them. Where's our admiration for that God? R.C. Sproul was asked one time, do you think it was unfair that because Adam sinned, he got banned from the garden? And he sat there for a while, and you could see his neck turn red. And this was in front of probably several hundred people. He took the microphone, he looked down, and goes, I don't know who asked that question. Now I'm ad-libbing a little bit, just so you know. What's wrong with you people? That's the question he asked him. A lump of dirt that God breathed life into destroyed paradise and cost God his only son. And you want to know if it's fair that he kicked him out of the Garden of Eden? Well, Adam and Judas are in two very different places. Same sin, different response from those two guys, different judgment. When it gets right down to it, all of us will make a similar choice, will we not? We are all guilty by the way by way of sin we inherited from Adam. Paul says it really poetically. He says, you know, we're all bound for hell. <laughs> he didn't quite say it that way. He could have. You know, here, here's, here's the deal, folks. We're all going to hell. Unless... You repent. Unless you change directions. We all have a similar choice. We're all guilty of the sin we inherited from Adam. And if that were not sin enough, from the moment we were born, we began to plot in our own DNA how to escape God and still get what God promises. Then as we grow older, those thoughts begin, begin to take form and we begin to live our lives in that way. So not only are we condemned by the sin we inherited from Adam, now we are condemned by the sin that we willingly do as we grow. So if it hadn't been Adam, it would have been you, or it would have been me. So the question is, is there any hope for us? Well, the Bible says this, we will all stand before Jesus and be judged as to whether we are worthy to enter into his presence. Acts 10.42 And he commanded us to preach, meaning the apostles, the disciples, to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. Is it judged by your works? Nope. Judged by who your God is. That's the judgment. And for those who have received the Lord Jesus Christ, you will stand, we will stand before Christ, but it will not be the same judgment as the non believers who stand before Christ. There will be an immediate condemnation. Ours will be a reckoning and an evaluation of the rewards. Of the rewards.
we receive. So if you were able to ask Jesus, what must I do? Or if Jesus were to say to you, why should I let you in? You're standing before me, Tom. And you want, to, you want to come into heaven. Why should I let you in? What have you done? Well, Lord, I, I didn't swear as much as I used to until I run a red light and hit another car. Well, I've, I've been a pretty good husband, a pretty good dad. I went to church a lot, and, but maybe not a lot. I, I prayed a, not a lot, but I prayed. Well, you're not, you're not doing too well. You're at, your batting average is pretty low right now. Why should I let you into my heaven? And you know the answer to this, many of you. But what would your answer be? I don't think I want to tell you the answer. Because if you don't know it, you need to think about it. So these are the players they are about to seize Jesus. And from here, it all goes downhill really fast. And for Christ, it's everything that he had planned for and desired to happen. And if you read ahead through into the crucifixion, and you read it with the question of this, how am I seeing Satan trying to stop this? You'll, you'll be amazed, perhaps, at the number of things that could have happened that didn't. Because God foiled Satan's plans. Because now Satan knew, and I guess he always knew, if he gets to the cross, he knew where he was going, is what he knew. Lord, sometimes the gospel is complicated, sometimes it's just really simple. Today it's simple. You have a plan. You started that plan. You will fulfill that plan. Your son came to this earth to die for the sins of the lost. Actually, to die for the sins of those who received him. He didn't die for the lost. He died for the saved. And God, we see the players in this. And we can probably figure out where we would be in this. But Father, the only place to be is a, is a believer. So Father, my prayer is this. If there's someone here who doesn't know you, they can come to this realization that they absolutely need your Son if they want to see heaven. There's no other way. And Lord, that they will... Pray through that. And then, of course, our hope is that they will just say simply, I am a sinner, Lord Jesus. I receive you now. We pray for that. God, we love you and we praise you. In Jesus' holy and precious name we pray. Amen. Blessings. I love you. Peace prayer.